Well, this morning, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn with me to 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 through 5, as we come now to the reading and the preaching of God's holy word. My friends, I consider it, as I mentioned earlier, a great privilege to bring the unchanging word of God to you in this hour. And don't worry, it won't be an hour long. It'll probably be about 20 or 30 minutes long. (laughs) But we call it this hour, right? (laughs) Although this is my first time, of course, being here with you this morning here at Barack Creek specifically, you all have been in my prayers uh, over the past few weeks. And my prayer for your sake has been that our passage this morning of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 will be of true and lasting comfort to each and every one of you here this morning. For it is here in this passage that we read of the God of all comfort, in whose name alone we have healing hope. And that will be the title of our message this morning, Healing Hope. Now, I'm sure that most of you will recognize this passage. As soon as you turn to it, you probably thought, oh, I I know this one. (laughs) It's familiar to me. We as believers often reference this truth that our God is indeed the God of all comfort, especially when a dear friend or a family member falls ill and needs just a simple word of encouragement. The Holy Spirit often reminds our own souls of this same truth, that when we are met with turmoil and the various struggles within our own souls, he is indeed the God of all comfort. And when we even find this this truth um, to be uh, comforting to us, it ministers to our souls. This, This verse is so common, though, even, that you may go over to the local TJ Maxx or Ross or maybe Hallmark and, and see Get Well Soon cards with the same verse printed on it or, or plaques over at Ross and TJ Maxx saying, oh, you know, God of all comfort, he's with you. You know, these same truths. This is such an, a common expression that we love to say, but have we truly thought about what it means that God is indeed the God of all comfort? See, the word of God is far more than just a proverbial pat on the back to us, as if God, the holy God, stoops down into the midst of our troubles and just tells us, oh, it's okay, you're going to be all right, and downplays our afflictions. Rather, our Lord has given us this passage to speak profoundly into the very heart of our deepest distresses. Martin Luther, who wrote that hymn that we just sung, A Mighty Fortress, also once said, the sea of God's mercies shall swallow up all our particular afflictions. And so it's when we learn to rest in this true and lasting comfort of God that he draws our souls out from under the weightiness of this world to the higher throne that is in heaven, where Christ is seated in victory over every sin and over every struggle within our souls. And so, friends, this morning, my desire for us is to see that healing hope is found only at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, namely, Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. So if you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians 1, as we now hear the voice of God given to us in his holy, unchanging, abiding word, which tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those 
who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Friends, this is, this is the holy word of God, forever faithful and true, and given to each one of us here in love. With this still fresh in our minds, let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask, O God, now for the preaching of your word to be truly before us an act of worship, both the preaching but also the receiving of the word, that as your word by your Holy Spirit is planted deeply within our souls, every one of us here, would it in your good providence bear fruit in your timing, O Lord? Let it be like a seed that must die before it is sown and so bring forth life. Let it be like a seed, though, that is planted within our souls, that though it might not bear fruit now, it will indeed one day bear fruit. And we know, O Lord, that every word of yours that is sown in this way by faith will not return in void. For your word is powerful and living and active. And it goes forth with your authority, for you have given it to us. I ask, O God, as I deliver your word to your people this morning, that I would simply be a mouthpiece of you, that I would get out of the way, and that your Holy Spirit would do all the preaching for us this morning. That the Spirit of Christ, the living Savior, would speak to our hearts and console us and bind up our hearts under the banner of Christ for his glory and our good. Amen. Well, friends, as we explore this theme of healing, hope that comes to us by and through Jesus Christ, I want to focus our minds upon the two promises that we find here in our text. So this will be one of those rare two-point sermons, right? (laughs) First, that our God unites us by his grace, which we'll see in verses 1 through 2. And second, that our God consoles us by his love. So again, two points. Our God unites us by his grace, and our God consoles us by his love. Now, many of you likely know that the Apostle Paul didn't write just one or even two letters to the church at Corinth, but even four letters in total. (laughs) We know this from passages like 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, and 2 Corinthians 2, verses 3 through 4, that there were actually two letters that were not inspired by God that Paul ended up giving to the church and probably felt a little ashamed in writing it after the fact because it wasn't from God. But see, like a child who doesn't obey his or her parents the first time, immediately, these same people, the Church of Corinth, and even the people throughout the entire region of Achaia needed a whole lot of correction, good teaching, love, discipline, and even more correction, teaching, love, and discipline (laughs) over and over and over again. And so while the Lord only inspired two of these letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, that we have in the Holy Word of God, the fact is that Paul and Timothy wrote both of these letters to these people in this very godless city of Corinth, think Washington, D.C., to prove their apostolic and pastoral authority without prejudice or pretense toward the people of God, without unfairness but rather in love toward them, to correct them. See, Paul and Timothy wrote to them solely in response to a real felt need for the believers in Corinth and Achaia to do two things by name. To first turn from their sins of doubt, dishonor, 
gossip, slander, and sexual promiscuity. And second, to know the jealous, holy, sanctifying love which God has for each one of us, his children. Now, historically speaking, the people of Corinth were addicted to the sexualized nature in which they lived, or the culture, rather, in which they lived. And on top of that, several members within the Corinthian church had just refused over time, as they fell back into the same sins that they came out of, they refused to give heed to the biblical instruction that was being given to them through the apostles and their own pastors that God had given to them. Instruction that was for their good and for their recovery from even addictive behavior. Now, humanly speaking, it would have been so easy for Paul or Timothy, in this case, who were writing them, to just simply give up on the church that was located within this godless city of Corinth. But God had compassion on them. See, by God's own hand, he had drawn these precious saints out of those cults to himself. He had delivered them from their false worship and their fornications at the altars of Aphrodite, the goddess of that Greco-Roman world, to humble their lives in surrender before the living and abiding word of Christ. And so in coming to Christ, these people, sinners turned saints, have been given visible signs and seals of the great salvation that God had given to them. These things that we know of as sacraments, the washing of them with the waters of baptism and the giving to them of real food and drink, pointing them to Jesus Christ alone. And so these people who were once rebellious, yet saved and now rebelling again, (laughs) had been justified, nevertheless, by faith in Christ and not in their own good works. Or catch this, even their ability to keep their own salvation, so to speak, for God kept them. See, one by one, though, these same people began to take advantage of this divine grace. They became licentious, as we might say. They took license to sin. And they began to take advantage of grace and to feast not upon the bread of life through the, through the bread and the wine, but in forsaking these things, they began to feast upon the promiscuous sins of their own culture once again. And that's why Paul was writing to them. But praise God for his kindness, which always leads his people to repentance. See, lest we think that we today, even here at Broad Creek Presbyterian, are above this sort of wayward behavior to follow the whim of the culture everywhere it goes, but for the grace of God, we too would fall for these same temptations, wouldn't we? See, the Bible repeatedly speaks, though, of God's character and his mercifulness in bringing rebellious, wayward sons and daughters like us back to himself. In Psalm 103, verse 8, it tells us that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and yet abounding in steadfast love. And so this is precisely why Paul and Timothy could write from the mind of Christ to a broken people yet struggling with sin with absolute confidence that grace and peace still belonged to them. Because better still, they belonged to God's grace and peace. But how? Because it was given to them solely by God the Father and secured once for all time through Christ Jesus, our Lord and their Lord alike. 
Friends, when we look around each other at this sanctuary even this morning, do you see your brother or sister in Christ as those whom God has shown this same great grace and peace? Can you see past the hurt that is real and the blind spots that others hold and may not even know about? The past failures and even the present hang-ups, the things that would divide us as Christians and the church of Christ, would you, in a place of confession, be willing before God as you ask for his forgiveness to ask him to help you forgive those who have sinned against you? And so, do you harbor resentment in your heart this morning in any way? Have the sins of others caused you to become jaded toward the body of Christ? I know I've wrestled with this. If so, will you ask God with earnestness to forgive you of these things as you seek to forgive others their debts that they have on you? See, the unity that God has specially created for us as people, as brothers and sisters in Christ, is only enjoyed when we live together as the church, together, all of us, in the light of his grace and peace that have been showered upon us. But friends, in this postmodern culture that is so divisive, to say the least, go on social media for one moment and you'll see it, radical individualism has become the only acceptable creed. Everyone is now being told to do whatever is right in their own eyes, just like the book of Judges. And even on my own street in downtown Lynchburg, on Court Street, I hate to say it, but sexual perversions abound, just blocks away from me, next door and down the street. And not only that, these same perversions of love are celebrated right now on my very street under the banner of pride. One church that is literally just one block away from me, has their cradle statement, like kind of an anti-Westminster confession, right? But their, their current cultural creedal statement, their belief system, plastered all over their building, twice even, not once, but twice on both sides of the building, right there along the street, saying, in quote, love is love, black lives matter, climate change is real, no human being is illegal, women's rights are human rights, And finally, all genders are whole, holy, and good. Do you catch the difference there? See, our culture has vandalized good gifts like love or concern for the environment or gender or rights or liberty or even ethnicity, good things, and in turn scandalize them and idolize them. This is the world of sin that we have been called out of, every one of us here much like the Corinthian church. See, the law of God, which is written on our hearts, every single one of us as humans, (laughs) whether you're a believer or not, but it's been given to us explicitly by God and his holy word, this law is being undermined before our very eyes through immoral legislation. But where sin and injustice abound, God's grace is yet still making inroads, isn't it? You see it right here. His grace pouring itself into our hearts. See, where the culture fails and the state refuses to govern, in light of God's holy commandments, the church alone will prove to be the hope of all of this earth. And so here at Broad Creek Presbyterian, even an hour away from Lynchburg, the story I just shared, do you see yourselves as saints, a people who are set apart for the culture, uh, from the culture, rather, for God's purpose? 
Will you as individuals and as the local church here, strategically speaking, prove to be men and women united by nothing less than God's saving grace in Christ? Will you seek the peace that comes only from the Heavenly Father and His only begotten Son? Will you openly confess your sins to one another and seek the beauty of a clean, pure conscience and holy communion with one another, even as the world drifts further and further into its adulterous love affair with the false, fake God of self? If so, I want to remind you of the vows that you took when you first joined the church here. See, in our Reformed tradition, when we join ourselves visibly to a local Bible-believing church, we take membership vows, of course. And in the ARP, one of our vows that we took, whether it be 10, 15, 20 years ago, or however long ago, one of our vows once asked us this, in quote, in loving obedience, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of this church, promising to seek the peace, purity, and prosperity of this congregation, as long as you are a member of it? And all of us, when we joined the church, said, yes, I will. Friend, if you can still answer with a hearty yes to this question, then know that God will certainly provide us with the blessed promise afforded to us in the second part of our passage. See, in verses 3 through 5, we know again that God will console us. But we only know that through his peace that he gives us. Peace within the church. See, again, God will console us, his people, even by his love, even in the midst of our most dire afflictions. And this truth is made manifest all the more when we are united by his grace. When the church actually functions as the body of Christ. See, when our hearts are humbled by God's grace and enamored by his peace, we cannot help but praise him. And this is why the Apostle Paul begins in verse 3, the second part of our passage, with that word blessed. But this word blessed is not the typical word that is used in the Greek for blessed. See, usually the writers of the scriptures use the word in Greek here. Here's a little Greek lesson. But makarios, blessed, which literally means happy. Makarios, happy, blessed. However, here the word is not makarios, happy. It's actually eulogetos, where we get the word eulogy from or good word. And it literally means in this context, good word or praise to God. And so we are to praise God or speak good words of God at all times in every situation. In other words, God doesn't just tell us to fake being happy, be blessed, right, kind of thing. But rather, even in the midst of our afflictions, he tells us to praise him. Praise God, the God of all comfort. It's when we learn to praise him in all of these circumstances that we experience his comfort, holy and holistically speaking. And verse 3 tells us as much. Now, let me show you, again, to go into teacher mode for a moment here with you. (laughs) Which translation makes more sense, happier or praise, right? Happy is God who comforts us in all of our affliction, or praise be to God who comforts us in all of our affliction? It's the second one, isn't it? Yeah. See, certainly God is eternally blessed. He is happy. (laughs) He smiles down upon his people. He loves us. But that is not the point of this passage. See, the point of this passage is that God is to be praised because he comforts us in every single one of our afflictions. God is to be praised or spoken well of, good word, eulogy, 
precisely because he is so near to the brokenhearted and knows how to comfort us in exactly the way that we need to be comforted. And get this, he doesn't just know how to comfort us, he wants to comfort us. He stands ready and eager to console our heavy hearts. One more Greek lesson, if you don't mind. (laughs) The word for affliction in the Greek has this connotation of being pressed down. So we have the whole idea of like blessed and whatnot, but also the idea of affliction here. Pressed down upon. And so to be afflicted is like trying to deadlift a weight that is far too heavy for you to handle. And as it is looming over your head, trying to lift this weight over you, you know that this weight, 200 pounds or maybe 50 pounds, right, depending on who this is, but whatever this weight is, it is stronger than us. And unless someone stronger than us comes and bears the weight and lifts it off of our shoulders and takes it, it will indeed crush us. In the same way, God knows the same afflictions that will indeed afflict or crush us. And he alone can lift that weight from off of our shoulders, ease our burdens, and console us in the midst of our most crippling fears and anxieties. So even when we face affliction, friends, our hearts can courageously sing out, as we did earlier, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. But how does his truth triumph through us? Well, simply put, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is himself our, our comforter and our helper by name, as Jesus called him in John 14. Uh, think of it this way. The very God who made all things and who upholds the universe by the word of his power takes pleasure, delight in helping you, no matter how strong or weak you might be before him. You're not a burden to him. And the burdens that you do struggle to shoulder are not too heavy for him to lift. Doesn't this truth make you feel happy, blessed, (laughs) relieved even? See, biblically speaking, the word comfort that we read of here has little to do with this idea of feeling comfortable at the end of the day. It doesn't have to do with comfort foods, you know, eating mashed potatoes, right? That's my favorite, (laughs) as Alyssa knows. doesn't have to do with eating the best foods or having the nicest clothes or living in the nicest house. The idea of biblical comfort has everything rather to do with consolation, our souls. See, consolation is the deep, soul-satisfying peace that surpasses all of our understanding. It's the peace the Holy Spirit grants to us in spite of our present circumstances. The peace, uh, this peace isn't a false sense of detached obliviousness or ignorance that pretends like everything is just, you know, hunky-dory or okay, when in fact it really is not. Rather, consolation God's consolation to our souls speaks the same powerful words of Jesus, peace be still to the chaotic waves and madness of our own lives. He speaks peace be still into the places of our own lacking, our doubting, our insecurities, and our genuine feelings of displacement in this broken, fallen world. Ironically enough, when we lose sight of this, and we begin to have this goal of comfortability in light, in, in our foresight rather, we neglect the truest of all comforts, don't we? The fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the Consoler, the Helper, the Comforter himself, 
See, when we place our trust in our earthly comforts, our our bank accounts, our relationships, our governing authorities, our family, our, our health, our intellectual abilities, we will often be crushed by those exact same things. For each of these good things, when we make them into God things, lowercase g, will fail us and in time vanish at the last. After all, our bodies will return to the dust. But for us as believers, though our outer self is wasting away, as we read of in 2 Corinthians, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so true comfort is the application of God's grace by the Holy Spirit, secured by the redeeming work of Christ upon the cross, measured out specifically for you, and poured into your souls by the loving hand of God, the Father of mercies. He is not put off by your afflictions, dear Christian. As the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs once said, there is a sea of mercy to swallow them up, all of our afflictions. And so in the midst of your frailty, your weakness, God does the exact opposite of withdrawing from you and becoming detested by you. Rather, he draws closer to you with his gentle, healing hand. And so when our souls become bereft of the joy and the peace which we have known as believers, our Father doesn't just stand by twiddling his thumbs, (laughs) waiting around for us to return. When are they going to come home and see my, well, me for who I am? No, he rushes after us to extend forgiveness. He prepares in advance a meal of the finest foods. He places upon our finger a signet ring, declaring us to be his beloved children. And he reminds us of his elective, predetermined, undying commitment to us, demonstrated by his son who went to the cross willfully for us, who bore the wrath of the hell that we deserved which was then placed upon his shoulders in our stead and was raised again bodily to new life, so giving us life. This is why our last verse, verse 5, tells us this. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In other words, each and every one of our afflictions as believers in Christ is never arbitrary. They are purposeful. And this is the divine redemptive purpose behind our sorrows, the joy, the joy of true and lasting comfort. Salvation from sin and triumph over every trial and tribulation that we face now in this life along the way. So as we close, I have one short and final question for you all. Will you, here at Brock Creek, be known as a people who are united by God's grace and consoled by his love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father of mercies, we thank you so much that your mercy toward us is never-ending. And Lord, how often do we take that truth for granted? Lord, we ask today that we would revel in this truth, that we would be so slow to listen to your truth, to just drink it in, and to be so fed by it. We ask, O God, that we would see you with clearer and brighter vision. 
for these things that often entangle us and snare our minds and our attention, even the good things often distract us and draw our affections away from you. And so, Lord, we ask that we would find you, the comforter and the consoler of our souls, to be the one who satisfies us by your love. May we become that people that we desire to be. May we become the people that we already are in Christ because of our union with him. Chosen, beloved saints. And so we pray all this in Christ's holy name.